All right. Am I on? Oh, goodness gracious. All right, if everyone come on in, have a seat. We'll get started. The ladies' class was started meeting again, and they they took a lot of people. So I can't blame. I can't fault them now. No. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get started with a word of prayer, and we'll get into class. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the many blessings um, that you give us, and we get thank you for the freedom and, and opportunity we have to come here and worship you, Lord. And just ask that you be with us as we go through our class and as we study the history of the Bible and and kind of how we got the Bible. And I just ask that you help us use it to, to maybe encourage others and, and use it as a proof of how awesome your word is and, and how relevant it is and, and how accurate it is. Lord, I ask you to be with all those who are sick and need our prayers. And this in Christ, let me pray. Amen. All right, so the title of this, and I didn't even call it a series, really. It's just going to be a, um, a few lessons, and we'll just see how far we go into it. Um. I just called it the Bible, looking at the history and, and study of God's Word. And the reason I, I wanted to go through this is we've had a couple, um, I've had a couple people come to me and I've had people, uh, have, I've had conversations with people on the side about some things. And there's a lot of misunderstanding uh, about some versions of the Bible, how we got the Bible. And so my goal here is to help people just to have a better understanding of where we, we got the Bible, where, where it came from, and how it's, uh, how it's um, developed and, and come to be over the last uh, several hundred years, really, and then even before that. Because I think it's important that we, we have a true understanding of this because sometimes we, we can see something and it seems like, oh, that's true, but then it ends up not being true, and you know, we don't know that. And I think sometimes that can hurt our, our mission of what we're trying to do if someone thinks that maybe we're... You know, we don't know what we're talking about when it comes to the Bible. So that's kind of what my approach is going to be here. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This is going to be just a lot of history. Um, if you don't like history and you find history boring, then this may be boring to you. If you love history like me, then you might really like this and it might be exciting. So I hope I don't bore too many people. And I tried to make it somewhat um, interesting and not entertaining, but interesting for, for everyone. So... But what I wanted to start off with is just some interesting facts <coughs> Excuse me, about the Bible. The first thing is, from the Greek, it's, and again, I think it's ta biblia. Is that how you say there, ta biblia? And it basically means the book or books or the scrolls. It is compromised of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, and 27 in the New Testament. Does anyone know how many authors there are in the Bible? 40. We have 40 different authors from Moses to the very first and John who wrote Revelations in the very last. Does anyone know how many languages make up the Bible? Three. Good. I didn't know if anyone would know that. What's the three? Three. 
Greek. Very good. The Aramaic one, a lot of people don't realize. A lot of people think that the Bible is just Hebrew and Greek. Um, the Aramaic side of it, uh, there's, there's some spots in Genesis. There's one verse in Jeremiah that's Aramaic. Six chapters in the book of Daniel. And seven chapters in Ezra. Uh, the Greek was written in all New Testament. Uh, all I'm sorry, all of the New Testament was written in Greek, but the actual spoken language of the time was Aramaic for the, for the, a lot of those. So Jesus Himself would have spoken in Aramaic. A lot of people think that since the Bible was written in Greek, that they they spoke Greek, but that was <coughs> not as much common then. Go ahead. Uh, no, the, the original Greek was an old Greek, and I forget the name of it. Do you remember? Right now, the New Testament, though, is that what you're asking, what the New Testament was written in? Uh, yeah. The New Testament is written in what they call Koine Greek, yeah. which would, we would call it today this, the common man's language, or some people even street language. It, it was, there was the, there was the, um, the I, I'm trying to think of the exact word, the terminology they used, but uh, classical Greek. And that yeah. was the Shakespearean kind of, you know, the, uh, the very flowery, the way he would generally be able to speak. Yeah. Uh, the very culture kind. But, but the New Testament is actually written in the, what was called the language of the common man. Okay. It would have been almost if you compared it today of, of the, the Queen's English versus the, the modern English that we, we speak in and, and write in today. So kind of like the, the two differences there. <clears throat> Does anyone know how long it took to write the Old Testament? About 1,400 years or Around about 1,000 years. So there's some, obviously, because we don't know exactly when uh, it was written, so, but it was about 1,000 years, and it took about 50 to 75 years to write uh, the New Testament. All right? It is the most sold by or book in the world... It sells over 100 million copies a year. I have this down. It's also the most stolen. That's the next point. <laughs> that's, no, that's fine. That's fine. It is the most shoplifted book or stolen book in the world. That's interesting. So, and Dad, yeah. yeah. And so the, Dad's not allowed to answer this one. What is the very last word in the Bible? Amen. Very good. So the very the church decided. Yep. <laughs> yep. That is the very last word in the book of Revelation. Amen. All right. So I, I want to throw some just some interesting facts. There's a lot of other ones in there, but uh, um, it, it's it's just the the Bible is a very interesting study. Um, by the way, before I go into this, there's a book by Lightfoot called How We Got the Bible. Um, it's a very he's a very good writer. Again, if it's one of those things where you don't like history and you don't like details of how things happen, you're probably not going to find it a very good read. But if you're interested in, in the history of the Bible, that this is a very good history. Go ahead. <clears throat> the New Testament took 50 to 75 years to write. How long after Jesus died did they start writing? Did you know? It was about 30, I think 30 years was the earliest. Because um, I think it was around 60 um, or 30 to 60 A.D. was when some of the earliest versions of the, or the, the letters were written. So it was about 30 years after uh, his death that 
that um, people like Paul and Luke and, and all those started writing about. 30 AD is when he died. I'm sorry, yes, 30 AD, 68, 62, um, I think 75 AD, and then even a little bit up to 100 uh, AD, I think was where some of them um, may, may have been. I, I have to find the exact dates. That's right, thank you. It was 30 AD that he died, not zero. Um, but it was 30 to 60 years mostly common is when most of the, the New Testament was written. All right, so how we got the Bible, <clears throat> besides God, obviously, and his intervention, I mean, if you look at the history of the Bible and how we got it, and the fact that we have something that started out, you know, three, three, three to 4,000 years ago, started being written to where we got it today, and the fact that it stayed intact and that it has stayed consistent. So you don't really find any, any inconsistencies of the Bible where it contradicts itself or, or you know, and the other thing that if you look at, if you look at all the prophecies in the Bible, there's some, and, and it's, it's up for the debate, but there's some, I think, 6,000 prophecies in the Old Testament, and, and Jesus himself fulfilled like 3,000, some of those. And, and so it's, it's amazing that you see the correlation in all, all the authors. There's no other book that if someone were to write, have 40 different authors, that it would mesh and come together. And, and, and even if you did it, in, in a hundred-year period, much less a two or three-thousand-year period of, of all these of all these authors coming together. But if you want to know and you want to you want to go back to the basics of how we got the Bible and how we still have it today, then you need to thank a scribe. In the ancient world, a scribe was a was considered to be a very valuable person or very important person because not only could they read, they could write, which you know we take for granted today. But in back the, back in the day, you know even I mean, even several hundred years ago, being able to read and write was not a common man type thing. And so, <clears throat> there was, for the most part, <clears throat> would anyone mind getting me a bottle of water? <clears throat> I forgot to grab my two bottles of water this morning. Um, <clears throat> scribes, there was, there was two forms of transcriptions usually in the Bible. There, were, there was what we call dictation, where they had reading rooms, whether they're called, or, or, or dictation rooms, or... or um, but what they would do is someone would sit in the front of a room and there would be, depending on the size of the room, maybe 10, maybe 5 people in there. And then one person would read and then someone, the dictator, would write. Right? <clears throat> That's where we get our term dictation from of, of writing. And so, thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it. <clears throat> and so that is how, the, you know, that was the modern, co modern copier of that time. Someone would speak and someone would write it down. They didn't have the, the printers and the, and the printing presses and the things like we had today where we can just pull it up and say print and make 100 copies in a couple minutes. And so that, that was the one way. The other way was just transcription. And what they would do is usually someone would sit in a room. <clears throat> it was usually a private area where they were, could be to themselves or with another person. And what they would do, and, and they took the process very seriously, one word person would copy from the original, write it down, and then another person who was with them would proofread it to make sure it was accurate. And if there was any mistakes, they would that page in that page, they would scrap it and then completely start over again and burn it. Yes. <clears throat> so we made a mistake on page one of two hundred or page ten or two hundred. We would they would burn one page. And that day it was scrolling, which would which would carry you know a whole <coughs> bunch of 
And, and if they were near the end of the scroll and they made a mistake, they burnt the entire scroll and started over. That's how serious they were about getting it right. They, they took it very serious. And, and we're going to look at the, and that's why you don't see a lot of the, the errors and stuff in the copying that you would, you would see with a lot of other texts. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, scriptoriums where they they did that, and, and a lot of this was done by a lot of monks um, and people. They they took their jobs very, very, uh, very seriously. So there's two forms, and Dad just mentioned one of them that they would write on. We had scrolls, and then later on, we started getting what's called codex. And basically, a scroll is you've seen them. You just would scroll, and then a codex was more or less a book. <clears throat> but it was usually made out of uh, sheep skin or deer skin or, or some kind of animal skin that was written on with, with ink. And so just to kind of give you an example and some interesting... <clears throat> let me drink again. Man, alive. <clears throat> Get a frog in your throat and it won't go away. So the scrolls, they were written in columns. Right, so... And it was... It would, what they would do is they'd take a piece of paper, usually papyrus, and they would glue them together. And the longest the scroll could be was about 35 feet long. And, and so this is one of the reasons why they believe, for example, like they, they originally believed Luke and Acts were one letter, where one was one written letter, and that the reason it was separated into two was because they could not fit the whole thing on one, onto one, um, uh, excuse me, one scroll. So that's why it was, you had the Luke, the scroll of Luke, and then the scroll of Acts. So it's just some interesting, again, that's some, some ideas and thoughts around that. Uh, and they were glued together, and then you would roll it. And so this is kind of what a, this is what a scroll. This is actually a, the oldest copy of the Torah, and it's intact, and it's 450 years old. And that's kind of what the, <clears throat> the original scrolls would look like. Usually it was... Um, a pyrus, it was a, some kind of either a weed, not a weed, a reed that they would break down. It's, it's similar to paper, how they would, they would mold them paper. Uh, some of them were made out of hemp, I believe. Um, but, but papyrus was the, a lot of that grew along the rivers. Uh, it mainly come out of Egypt, was um, where it kind of originated and started. They would in some cases, but it just depended on the length of it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But they also, like Dad talked about, they took it very serious. Right. So it was like if you made a mistake, then we're going to start over. And so that it was a very serious. Um, when Jesus talked about the scribes and Pharisees dotting every I and crossing every T, that's that's was from that because if they if they found where an I wasn't dotted or wasn't crossed many times instead of just dotting it they would they would burn the scroll and start over they were that serious about getting it and and that's today and we're going to look at that why you know we can look at the, the all the different translations and manuscripts that we have and how accurate they are i mean how accurate we're, we're going to look at that and then this is kind of what a codex looked like i tried to get the best picture this is one of the um i think a new testament one 
in the Greek, one of the whole ones. And again, it, it was like a book, right? They would use leather um, or sometimes wood, just depending on how they went, to make the outsides. <clears throat> and they used animal skins, and then they would just bind it together like they, we, we did a common book or sew it together. Vellum, um, yeah, they, they used, a, it was a, the most common, I think they said, was sheep and goat skins. Vellum, yeah. Um, uh, some deer, you know, just kind of whatever they could, you know, get at the time and, and tan and hide it because it would last. It would last for a long time. <clears throat> all right. So and all of this comes from and was considered what we would call manuscripts. And manuscripts is just something that is written by hand. And there's different types, and I'm going to look at the Old Testament manuscripts and the New Testament manuscripts that we have. The Old Testament manuscripts, we have about 200,000 or plus Old Testament manuscripts. Now, when I say we have 200,000, that does not mean we have 200,000 full whole copies. <clears throat> what it is is we have um, 200,000 either pieces or sections or, or parts. Now, some of those are whole copies, but most of them would be sections or a scroll, one scroll here, one scroll there, uh, maybe just one page that they found there. The oldest ones that they found come from, um, I want to say about 300 to 400 B.C. <clears throat> and they were actually, what the, uh, some soldiers would do is they would write sections of Scripture on a silver, it was, it was a, like a, a cloth thing made out of silver, I forget the exact name for it, and they would wear it around their arms as kind of a, a band. And it was, you know, helped to, I guess, you know, having Scripture on them as part of their power, not power, but anyways, going with them and stuff like that. They have dug those up out of some graves and, and stuff, not digging up graves, but you know, archaeological findings and stuff where they found those. And some of those are some of the oldest that, that we have. So uh, just to kind of give you some examples, there's the, and I don't know how if I'm going to say this right, and I'm just going to go to the, the next one. That the first one is the the Masoretic, I think is how you say that. They they consider that to be one of the most authoritative versions of the Hebrew Scriptures, and it was and it was standardized about a thousand A.D., so the year one thousand. The Dead Sea Scrolls, and this is going to be an interesting um, parallel here. These were manuscripts found um, in, in one of the caves, the Korum, Kuman, Kumaran caves, is how you say it. And those date back all the way to 250 B.C. So on, on some of the, the carbon dating. <clears throat> the Dead Sea Scrolls were mainly Hebrew Old Testament. There were some other um, cultural relevant writings that were, that were found in there as well. But here's the interesting thing. The, the, the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls were separated by about 1,000 to 1,200 years. And there was, a, there was two copies of the book of Isaiah that were found, and they compared them to the one that they had that was formalized in 1000 A.D., and they were 95% the same. Of the 5% that was different, most of that was uh, either misspellings or variations in the, in the text. Like if I, you know, if I were to write something today, it may look a little bit different than someone else writing something in the same language. I would probably misspell all the words, whereas someone else wouldn't, you know. So, or just common, what they call common slips of the pen or, or variations in spelling. So nothing in those that you would find would be significantly different. Go ahead. 
These scrolls were not discovered until what? The 40s? 1948, is, I believe. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, and that's what's made, they, they say it's probably one of the, the Dead Sea Scrolls are probably one of the most significant findings in biblical history in the last several hundred years. A kid found them. Yeah, yeah. They were Roman. I think it was some, a kid and some, some shepherds and, and stuff in the, in the mountains, and they just come across them and started to find all these, these jars. I think they had and different things in all these different caves. that are out there. Again, I couldn't list all of them. But New Testament manuscripts. There's roughly 5,800 Greek, the original Greek manuscripts. And when I say original, it wasn't the original ones written. It was copies of copies. Um, but the, some of the oldest being, or the, yeah, the oldest being around 300 A.D. all the way up to, um, you know, your, your, your Dark Ages times of 1500 to 1600 A.D. There's 10,000 Latin uh, manuscripts of, that were translated from Greek to Latin, and 9,300 that were written in other languages. So just of the time, around that time. So here's one of the things I want to look at when it comes to the different manuscripts and the different texts, and that's called what they call textual criticism or variations. Now what a lot of people will try to do to disprove the Bible is they will talk about the fact that there is 400,000 variations in the manuscripts, the different manuscripts of the New Testament. Well, if you go, yeah, well, man, you can't trust something that's that got that many variations in it. Well, we talked about when we talked about the series of God's uh, series that we did, they counted each variation as one. So if I made a mistake in a copy, and then I had a thousand copies of that copy, and they all had that same mistake in it, then that was considered 1,001 variations. So... It's a little bit tricky when they start talking about, well, your Bible's not accurate because of all the variations. And so there's different things that we need to look at. There's four variation types that they look at in the Bible or in the, in the, the New Testament and, and as they go across. The, the four is this. either It's neither viable nor meaningful. It's viable but, not have, but has no meaning. It has meaning but it's not viable or it's both. It's viable and meaningful, and we're going to look at it. We're going to break all four of these down and look at them. All right? So the first one, neither viable nor meaningful, it makes up 70% of all variations in the Bible, in the translations, meaning typically it's simple spelling mistakes or some different, you know, you know like, like Dad talked about, you know, didn't dot an I or didn't cross a T type thing. Those are, and so we know that those are not viable, or meaningful at all. We just know that they, you know, we can look at the Greek, they can look at the, all the writings, and they can say, well, that person just misspelled this word here, this, you know, this, this, you know, this didn't copy right from here, and so we know that it's not viable and it's not meaningful. So, I mean, you can just immediately cut 70% 70, uh, 70 <coughs> of all those out. Now, number two, viable but not meaningful. No, I'm, I'm actually getting that's going to do. So, Number two, viable but not meaningful. One of those, an example of that is John's name in the Greek. John's name in the Greek has two different spellings. One of them has one V. The second one has two Vs. 
You can see it kind of up here a little bit. That's the Greek. I can't read that. But you see the two Vs. Now, it's viable, but does it have any meaning? Right? If someone, you know, people spell my last name wrong all the time. You know, green, some people spell it green without an N, or without an E, and other people spell it correctly with the E. It doesn't change anything in who I am or about me. It's just that someone spelt my name wrong. And that's kind of the same thing <coughs> that we have in these. The third one is meaningful but not viable, meaning it's, it doesn't apply, right? It's not viable to the original text of what they were actually trying to get. Luke 6.22 is an example of this. It says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Well, there is a manuscript that says this. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Now that means two different things. But we can know, and by studying the Greek text, that more than likely, whoever was copying this in this particular uh, codex missed the ending of this verse. Because we know that, Luke, or that Jesus was not talking about everyone who is hated and everyone who's excluded and everyone who's reviled because that could be anyone at any given day sometime. <clears throat> the original meaning was if you are, are, are hated because of Jesus Christ. So they can, they can conclude that it, since that one codex had that error in it, that that was not, you know, one, it wasn't the original, and two, we know that that was not meaningful, or it's meaningful, but we know it's not viable, that, that they really did not, that was not the original intent of that verse. So when we, they see things like that, they can exclude it out. And then finally, the fourth one, viable and meaningful, and these, these account for less than 1% of the different um, variations that we see in the Bible. And one example is John 1, or 1 John 1, 4. Some manuscripts say, and we are writing these things too, so that our joy may be complete. And other manuscripts says, and we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Now, this is both viable and meaningful because it has two separate meanings. And the reason that they have this, and I, and I didn't put it up here, but the wording for your and our is separated by one letter. And so whenever these were copied, some copied it as your and some copied it as our. Now, it does change the meaning of the verse, but in the long term, does it change the meaning of anything that is significant? I mean, it's not going to, this one of them writing for their joy or your joy is not going to change any of our theology, right? Go ahead. It could. It could. Well, if you look at the first four verses, when John <clears throat> is writing about this, he says in verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim so that you too may have fellowship with us and so, I, you know, either way, I mean, yeah. he's talking about what he and the other apostles had seen, and now they're sharing it with the church. Yep. So, so again, 
you know, uh, when you look at things like that, to us that's trivial. Yeah. But the enemies of the cross are going to try to use that for, you know. And so, and this, and this, this, so when someone says that the Bible has, you know, all these contradictions or all these variations, this is the most significant things they can find. And, and, you, and when you think about this, and I, and I didn't want to go into this detail, but if you think about, so like things written by like Shakespeare and stuff like that, you know, and, and some of the great writers, they'll only have like three copies of the originals, and a lot of them won't be 100%, and so they've got to merge them all together, and they will consider those 100% accurate. But you take 5,800 copies of the Greek New Testament that we have, and you can't hardly find re any real variations in them, and they'll talk about how, well, it's not accurate, or, or it's, you know. And so this is these kind of things that is what I wanted to show that, uh, of how when they say that there's variations and that changes the meaning of the Bible, this is the small stuff that we're talking about that has no significant impact on the actual legitimacy of, of what Christ did and who he was. Were you going to say something? When Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he shows in there, very, you know, with, with facts and evidence, as he calls it, where Jesus Christ, there's more evidence that he existed than there is for any other historical oh, yeah. figure, including yeah. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. Yep. All the there, more writings and more on him. More writings, more, more history, uh, more evidence. Um, the New Testament and Old Testament books of the Bible have been vetted by more people than any book in the world, probably combined. Um, to me, that's why man, if he loses his soul, he won't have nobody to blame but himself. Yeah, yeah. Because there's yeah. enough evidence out there, you know, even if somebody wasn't shown the truth, you know, that they, that they could find it. Yep. You know, it's there. Yep. And some people get twisted up over this one little twist to mean that way, it, that, that right little bit cost you your whole soul. Yeah, yeah. And over things that really do not change the theology of the Bible one bit. So here's, here's what we're going to get to. Okay, so the translation types. So they started translating the, the Bible into um, first Latin and then, and then English. And we're, and we're going to look at the, a little bit of that. But there's three types for the most part of, of translation. There's formal equivalence, which is word-for-word -word translation. All right, they basically tried to go in and translate the Greek word into the English word and make it make sense in a sentence. There is the dynamic equivalence, which is the thought for thought. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, type. So basically they would take a, a sentence and try to get what the entire thought or meaning of that one sentence is, was and translate that into English. And then there's the paraphrase, which was a, just a retelling. Basically, someone going in and, and trying to tell it more of a, in a story format. Of, and some examples of that are the message, uh, the living Bible, um, things like that. Now, <clears throat> for the most part, all three of these are legitimate. The paraphrase, again, is not something that you want to take and, and build your structural theology on. It, it's a good way of reading the Bible to get the story around it, but it's not something you want to go to for, for and build your your theology around and and you know a lot of people like to listen to it for for listening purposes and stuff like that but honestly I would stick with for your reading and study your formal and dynamic equivalents and we're going to look at this so kind of an example of how they got um, or how they 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 got the different translations and types for the most part so if we start at the King James versions and earlier 
they used a 1598 and 1588-89 Greek book that they had for the most part there. I think they said like 75 to to 85% of it was pulled there. And then also an addition of the Latin Vulgate, which was the kind of the, um, at the time, the Roman Catholic Church, their accepted version of the Bible that was translated into Latin. The modern versions, your more modern versions, use, and I'm probably going to butcher these names, is the Codex Synanatics and the Codex Vaticanus. And these two, these two codexes are considered to be some of the most accurate codexes because they are the oldest. When I say the oldest, it's because, one, they, they, they have, um, they're the oldest and most complete. So, for example, the synactics, I think is how you say that, they actually did not find that until 1844. And when it was found, they've dated it back to 330 to 360 A.D., and it is the oldest, most complete manuscript that we have of the Bible. The Codex Vaticanus, which is interesting, it's actually older, but it's been in the, the Vatican Library since I think like the 13 or 1400s. So, and, and so a lot of people didn't have access to it before then. But those are considered to be the two most accurate, and people have built on those as we've learned the, the different languages. So here's kind of an example. If you want to see, and I hope y'all can read this, <clears throat> a Bible translation chart, right? And so and we're going to talk about this. If you want to look at the most accurate word-for-word version of the English New, uh, Bible, especially the New Testament, that is going to be your New American Standard. And then your, your, your what we would consider, I guess, your least inaccurate would be your, obviously your paraphrases who, who just paraphrase the Bible. The thought for thought, I wouldn't say that they're inaccurate, but they, 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 they are a different um, type of translation, right? So it's, they, they still have a lot of the same meaning and stuff, but it doesn't have the same meaning as the, the word-for-word type translations. And we'll, we'll look at these, but your thought for thoughts are, are um, your, your New King James kind of hovers on the edge of that, of the word for word and the thought, but um, the NIV, the uh, new, um, the NLT is uh, one of those. So that's kind of some of your your different versions of the different Bibles and how they basically more or less work along the the type of translation. All right, so history, real quick. The English translation history: the first person to translate the Bible into English was in 1382. It was AD. It was John. Wycliffe, that's I think how you say his name. It was the first English Bible, but it was translated from the Latin Vulgate. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't translated from the original Greek. He died in 1384. He was declared a heretic in 1415 because of what he, what he wrote and, and some of the things that he supported that were against the Catholic Church. They exhumed his body, burned it, and then he said all of his writings needed to be uh, burned as well. Yes, they, they got their Bible from the Latin Vulgate. Same thing he used. Mm-hmm. But he talked about things that, you know, that were against the Pope and some of their structures and more of a Reformation type person, which obviously they were declared heretics. The next major person to, to do an English translation 
was William Tyndale. He did a translation in 1525 A.D. This was the first translation to come to English from the Greek. He was executed and burned as a heretic. <laughs> Again, because he, he was a lot of his writings and stuff and, and was probably a lot of early forms of the, the Reformation movement that, that kind of broke from the, the Catholic Church. The next significant one we have is the King James Version that was written in 1611 A.D. Yeah, yeah. Sixteen eleven was when the King James Version was written. It was written, um, well, authorized by King James, but it was the uh, some of the bishops of the the English Church. The English Church was a, or the Church of England was a breakaway from the Catholic Church. They still had similar, some similar theologies around the Catholic Church, but a lot of it was they did not believe in the Pope and. Instead of, instead of the Pope being the head of the church, um, the king or queen of England was kind of the head of the church, although they didn't have the same level of you know, God-like power that the Catholic Church considered the Pope to have. So it was a little bit different. But here's some things we need to look at. So it had six panels, 47 men all total. But here's some things we have to look at in the King James Version. The King James Version's translation had conditions. The bishops... One said that the qual one of the qualifications was there could be no marginal notes. There could be no notes about, like we see in our study Bibles where you see stuff in the footnotes, there could be no none of that. And a lot of that came from some things that they found offensive. Uh, one was in Exodus where there was some challenge to the royal supremacy. So they did not want their kingships or their, 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 their royalty to be challenged. And the other things um, around Pharaoh being challenged as well, civil disobedience, they, they didn't want any, any kind of stuff in that to be in there. And the other one was in Second Chronicles um, where there were some footnotes about uh, where they, they, they uh, criticized King Isa for not having uh, executed his mother, which actually was his grandmother. And they, and they considered that, that it could be something to do with, well, then... If, my, if his mom did something wrong, who was the queen of the Scots, then maybe that were, there could be justification for executing or getting rid of her. So they didn't want anything in there that might justify them rising up against their, their kingships or their, or their royalty. Go ahead. People say these conditions and who these people it was the bishops of the church at the time and King James himself. No, that was the Catholic Church. It, it, that was two separate things. The Catholic Church and, and the, the Roman Catholic Church at that time were... were yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, when you write a book that you say, you, all I want is the absolute truth, but then you add conditions to it, yeah. then you can't do that. Right. And so here's the other thing. King James himself said that certain Greek and Hebrew words had to be translated in a certain manner and along with that reflected the traditional usage of in the church. So one word, and this was one of the words that Tyndale himself, uh, that they did not like, was Tyndale translated the word ecclesia to actually say congregation, which means group of people. In the King James, he would not allow that word to be used. They had to use the word church. 
which it's significant, and there's a significant here, not as much today, but it was then. The reason they use the word church is because church had a German, um, my mind just went, basically it was, a, it was part of a German word. It translated from a German word, which meant physical building or location. And the reason they wanted that is because they wanted to keep their idea around the Church of England being a physical thing. Because if they, at that time, the idea of the church not being like the Catholic church and, and, and more of a physical type stuff and a, and a structure of people, and it's just actually just a group of people anywhere, was, was very threatening to them because the idea of that was, well, if people think that they can meet and do what they want as a church or a group of people by themselves, then that would, could ultimately lead to an uprising against us. So, that's kind of some of a backstory to the King James. The other thing, too, is for the most part, the King James uh, is actually about 83% of Tyndale's words in the New Testament and uh, 73% of the Old Testament. So if you look at Tyndale's version of the Bible, a lot of it was borrowed for the King James Version. So it's kind of interesting that the, he was killed as a heretic, but then a lot, and then further on, he, his works were used to, to bring about the King James. So from about the king, from 1611 to then, around 1885 to 1901, there was really no major revisions around the Bible. From eight, and then so in 1885 to 1901, we had what was the Revised Bible, and then the American Standard Bible. Uh, the, that kind of went into from there, eventually went to the Revised. Um, uh, American Standard to the Revised Standard to the English Standard that we have today. And that was kind of the first kind of revisement to get to the original English. The next one we have, I mean, sorry, the original Greek. Go ahead. They, they revised the King James Version a couple times, right? They did. They made changes to it, but they were not major. No, but they, it was not like, the, not, the 1611 is not the 1611. Right, right. There was, I think there were some changes in the 1700s and then some changes in the, but they weren't like very, uh, yeah. But it, yeah. it has been rewritten a couple of times. Yes, yes. So I'm yeah. trying to say. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So people yeah. try to go, oh, it's, you know, back then was it. Right yeah, now, yeah. Right? No, 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 yeah. That's not it. It's no, there were there changes from 1611. I, th I think there was a, a change uh, that got together and they did some changes in the 1700s. And then the 1800s, and the most significant was then the New King James Version, which we'll look at real quick. It's quite difficult to read and understand. Yeah, it is very hard to read and understand. Well, in that day, it would not have been. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that day, it was their modern English, you know, I mean, but, but yeah, obviously today, yeah. you know, uh, how many of y'all read original, you read original unrevised Shakespeare? <laughs> I can't hardly read it. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, that, yeah, it is tough. Every other word today is basically in life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in 1952, they did the Revised Standard, which was a revision of the American Standard that they did in the late 18 and early 1900s. This was the very first Bible to use the, the Dead Sea Scrolls for a lot of the Old Testament translations. All right, and then in 1971 and in 1995 and now 2020, we got the original New American Standard Bible, was 1971. It was a, the original translation from the Hebrew and the Greek, the most accurate 
Greek text that we had at the time during that time when they, when they uh, translated it. This is considered to be the most accurate word-for-word translation of the Bible that exists today. Is the New American Standard. And it is because of the fact that they had 50, when they originally did this, they had 50 doctoral candidates to help that, and their doctorate had to be in biblical languages. They weren't just doctors of the Bible or had their doctorate in, 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 in theologies. They were actually doctorates in biblical languages. And they came from all over, everything from the Baptist Church to the Church of Christ to the, I mean, it's a, just a huge list of people who came, came together to do this. All right, your next one is, in 1978, the New International Version. They, again, used the earliest, highest quality manuscripts available. It took 10 years and over 100 scholars to, to do the NIV, and their goal was to find a balance between word-for-word word and thought-for-thought thought and so that it was easy to read. Because, you know, that was the, the biggest thing is, you know, you would, the New King, or the King James at the time was, you know, the most popular and again, in the 1970s, as the English language started to develop, most people could not read that very well. It was harder to read. No, they weren't. Back when I was a kid, some of that language is still, you know, prevailing a little bit because it was more common. Yep. But today, it is oh no, they would they would think you were speaking a foreign language. To somebody in that class, they would think that I was like giving something away. <laughs> yeah, right? yep, yep. But that meant biblical love. Yeah. Not charity, like yep. we think of charity. So things have changed. Words change. Yeah. Like meaning change. Yeah. So. Yep. Uh, I'm going to keep going. I got till 1020. So um, ni- uh, in 1982, they developed the new King James Version. And again, this used the same source as the King James. They didn't use any of the, new, the older Greek text that they had found. They just used 20th century language. And that was the point of trying to make the King James easier to read was the, the main reason for that. And then lastly, I have, and there's some other versions after that, but I'm not going to get into all those. It's 1996, they had the New Living Translation, uh, which is, if you notice, that's what I tend to use when I'm, when I'm teaching. Um, it was a New English Translation. It was, came from the Hebrew, Arabic, and Greek text. Um, originally, it started out as a attempt to bring the Living Bible, which was a paraphrase, into a more modern translation, but they gave up on that because they wanted to be able to have the, the thought-for-thought translation in there. And so it is, it's kind of as an easy-to-read, thought-for-thought version of the Bible. And I like some of it. I, use it. I tend to use it for reading and teaching, but I tend not to use it for study, and I'll, and I'll talk about that here in a minute. So with all of this... Um, I want to get to a couple of things. So, and I'm going to skip some of the, the, the things that I have in here originally. We'll talk about them next week. But the main reason I want to talk about this, and, and, and I want you to think about this for next week, is because there's a lot of false teaching, and a lot of it comes around what they call the King James Version only um, teaching or movement. And basically what they say is that the King James Version is the only authorized version of the English Bible. And they also say that it is, there's some that say it's actually the only inspired version, meaning it was inspired by God, English version of the Bible. And so I want to address that because if you actually look, and when I say this, don't, don't get upset, the King James Version 
today would be considered actually the most, when we talk about word-for-word translation, the most inaccurate version of translation. Now, when I say that, do I mean that there's anything in there that changes our theology or or changes the truth about God? No. What it means is, is in the 400 years since it was written, we have found newer manuscripts, or older manuscripts, that are, are closer to the original Greek, and, we've, and they've learned a lot more about the Greek language and how it's developed. So again, when I say that, it's not that don't use the King James because it's, it's bad. It is just that the newer, like your new American standard, is, would be considered more accurate and more to the meaning of what the original Greek was trying to say. Now, I'm not saying that about the NIVs and, and the NLTs because we're talking about word for word here. And so when we have that comparison, so if someone says to you, that you can't use the King James or you have to only use the King James, that's a, that's a false teaching. All right? And, 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 it's, and I want to get to that. Go ahead. Well, first, authorized. So the King James authorized. Well, it was considered authorized because the King of England authorized and allowed them to make that Bible. Which, re- which wrote it in, uh, in rebellion against the Catholic Church. Right. Not exactly a good reason to translate yeah. Scripture. But, right. And he was so, a man. Yeah. Yeah. So the man authorized it. So a lot of people are basing their faith on what a man did. Yeah. So no, an uninspired man yeah. who was not an apostle. Or... So with that, with that said, and I, now I wanted to get that before we ended. The reason I say all that is because I don't want anyone to get caught up in the in the translations of, as one being evil and one being better than you know or better than one. In the most part, they say the exact same story. They say the exact same thing. They say you have to do the exact same thing to be saved.